The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Opus Energy Insights on Barron's Live. I'm Brittany Martin, Senior Analyst at Chemical Market Analytics. My guests today are Adrian Cooper, Chief Economist and CEO at Oxford Economics, and Nick Livingstone, partner and head of Americas at Ryside Energy. Welcome, Nick and Adrian. Thank you for having us. Thanks. So just a quick reminder before we begin, um, if you have questions for Adrian and Nick, feel free to submit them in the Q&A section, and we will get to them after the discussion. All right, so jumping right into it. Adrian, I was able to preview your slides for tomorrow's presentation Mm -hmm. regarding the $10 trillion opportunity in the energy transition. And I noticed on one of your slides, you mentioned both indirect value and direct value. Can you explain what the indirect value of the energy transition is? Okay, so what we're doing in this this particular study is trying to size the markets for some of the critical technologies that are going to drive us achieving net zero by 2050. So we're trying to look at how big things like um, electric vehicles, renewable energy, uh, clean uh, um, energy equipment manufacturing, hydrogen biofuels are going to be. And we're looking at that both those industries themselves, but also critically their supply chains. And it's that supply chain impact that we mean by the indirect impacts uh, uh, of the transition within um, that particular uh, study. So, for instance, in the case of electric vehicles, you're going to have those manufacturers making direct contributions to GDP in the countries they're operating. But as well, they're going to be drawing in inputs from a whole range of suppliers from lots of different industries, lots of different countries, including the, the chemicals um, sector. And actually, within that overall $10 trillion value, um, something like two-thirds of that comes from the supply chain, comes from this indirect impact. Um, and that's important because actually it's likely to be those supply chain opportunities are more open to competition um, and more geographically widespread than the sort of big manufacturers, say, of electric vehicles tend to be. So that's a real opportunity for lots of countries if they can get their industrial policy right. But I think it's also there are other indirect effects that um, the energy transition can have that I think are important too. Um, And in particular, one of the things we've done a lot of work looking at is the spillover effects that might come from the R&D associated with um, achieving net zero. There's a lot of research that shows that R&D has benefits to industries beyond those directly doing the research and development, essentially as it sparks the um, invention of new products or new yeah, um, production processes. And we yeah. think that could be quite substantial too as an indirect benefit from the transition. Definitely. What's the secret then to keeping momentum amidst high interest rates? Yeah, so, I mean, high interest rates are clearly one challenge to economic growth, but right now are only one of a number. You know, governments are struggling with high levels of, of debt, mm-hmm. particularly with interest rates having gone up and the cost of servicing that debt having increased. We've got challenges too from demographics and increasingly those we're going to see biting in emerging markets as well as in older advanced economies. And as well, we've got problems in some countries with falls in labour participation. So 
productivity is going to be the key to driving growth going forwards. The problem is the story there isn't that pretty either, yeah. I'm afraid. And in particular, the contribution of capital investment to productivity growth has been going down. A whole range of reasons why that might be. I think one important one is that companies worldwide have actually switched from being net investors to, to net savers, perhaps under pressure from uh, financial markets. So what we actually need sort of behind that to drive that productivity is more innovation. That's where hopefully things like AI will come in, although I think that's going to take time to feed through to, to productivity. But again, the innovation associated with the energy transition too. Awesome. Would you say then that the $10 trillion opportunity is a way to offset structurally lower growth? Well, uh, it's certainly a big upside to the economic growth um, outlook. Yeah, I think it's not difficult to identify a number of structural factors that mean that growth into the medium term is um, going to be challenging. And this $10 trillion opportunity in the green economy, certainly it's worth something like 5% of global GDP. Yeah. So if we can grasp that, um, that's a, a huge benefit, as well as, of course, the benefits that come from avoiding global warming and the cost of the economy from that. Awesome. Thank you. I want to pivot really quickly to Nick and ask if there are any potential drawbacks regarding job displacement with respect to the energy transition. Uh, yeah, I mean, of course, you're going to find that there are going to be some winners and losers, right? Um, by definition, we call it a transition, which means you're going to move from one state to another as opposed to a revolution, which suggests that it's sort of something brand new that's there. Um, Simplistically, you might say, well, if you're in an extractive industry, if you're in the sort of fossil in the oil and gas sector, um, how does that survive long term when everybody's calling for an end to you as an industry altogether? We look at this a lot as an organization because, of course, as we stack up the entire energy mix and the sort of long term demand, energy is made up of all these different components. But oil and gas is going to continue to be a really important contributor into into being able to um, fuel the economies of this world. Okay. Right now, you know, the goal was initially, hey, let's get to this 1.5 degree scenario. Let's get there by 2050. Let's sort of make sure that as as a world, we sort of help um, help a, help lower the sort of carbon footprint. Problem is, we started too late, and we haven't yet at all invested in in the right amount, um, anywhere near the right amounts, right? And so, what we have now is we have to look at a world in which we're going to be probably more than 1.9, which is our view as to where we're going to end up. Now, a 1.9 degree view still means that about 40%, so your remaining sort of wedge of, of hydrocarbons that are going to be demanded will be about 60% of what we are consuming today. So the extractive industry isn't a place where you're going to see a massive deterioration, but there, there for sure are going to be instances where you are going to see, and, and I agree fully on, you know, the supply chain has also been a huge bottleneck to being able to move forward as fast as we've wanted to. Um, so, I, you know, as we look at it as a, as a business, uh, we, we for sure see that there's going to be massive opportunities actually for this to, to generate a lot of in incremental jobs and, and to find opportunities. But it's country specific. Right. And yeah. so, you know, as you look at the different sectors and the different nations, Indonesia cares about coal and needs to think about that in its mix. Uh, and the U.S. cares about fuel uh, and it cares about being able to drive and it cares also about being able to produce hydrocarbons. So. Uh, there's a little bit of a horses for courses at this point. Definitely. Thank you for that. Adrian, I'm curious to know then how policymakers can effectively balance economic growth and sustainability initiatives. Yeah. And I mean, there's a, a bit of an implicit assumption in your question there that there's a, a trade-off. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's true 
in the near term, but it's less obviously true once we push beyond 2050, particularly if we're talking about the degree of uh, climate change that, that Nick was just describing. We've been doing a lot of work looking at the economic costs of climate change, how that affects different countries. And you know, we find not only are those, those impacts very um, dispersed across different countries, but also um, those impacts are, are very um, non-linear. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not to say there aren't going to be important costs in um, the, the next 10, 20 years from, from this trend this transition. Um, We're talking about such massive shifts in what consumers are buying, how companies operate. There's going to be a a price associated with that. As Nick said, the unfortunate thing is we've not got on with that quicker. Mm -hmm. One of the critical ways of minimizing that cost is um, to move um, swiftly so that you're not at some point all of a sudden having to make sudden adjustments that are uh, uh, extremely uh, costly. Absolutely. So then, Nick, to what extent does government policy play a role in driving investments and incentivizing green energy? It's great that, you know, electrification is expanding worldwide, but how can we get everyone on the same page and make this process truly renewable? Yeah, I mean, you know, government policy is, of course, going to be critical. I mean, I I agree with what Adrian's saying. At the end of the day, the government has to be in the middle of supporting this this transition. And um, and that's a role that it has to accept that it's going to play. Part of the challenge is, of course, then the government's hand is very intimately involved in the transition. Uh, and it's a transition that actually involves lots of elements, which is both the financial um, inputs and contributions that need to be made into to making this the policies that need to happen in order for that to happen, but also the technology and the investments in technology that need to be driven. You know, if you thought about uh, government regulation and you sort of looked at... Um, you know, certain economies and certain um, uh, certain countries, you'd say, well, uh, I think we should build more nukes, right? And if nuclear power was one of the, the resources that the world should benefit from, uh, where are you going to do that, right? The not-in-my-backyard ethos of, uh, of nuclear is such a strong one. But if you go to China, for example, they're, they're able to create uh, and, and build nuclear plants. But interestingly enough, they do so at the same time as they're building coal plants. And they're also doing that at the same time as they're building more wind and solar capacity than anyone else. Um, But so therefore, it actually, when you think about the sort of government um, involvement piece, we need the regulation, but we also need the certainty of that regulation and the certainty of that government to be able to then make what is in fact now long-term bets on, you know, what is it that is going to survive from a technology perspective? What's, you know, what what is my investment going to return me in the long term? Yeah, I mean, and just to add, I mean, the the point is the government cannot afford to fund this transition on its own. So it's all about getting the right incentives in place and the right regulatory environment so that the private sector capital is crowded in yeah so then in your opinion and i guess you know both of you can kind of weigh in on this but specifically for nick Mm. do you think that it's more effective for governments to enforce regulatory policy or to provide monetary incentives with respect to the energy transition yeah good question i I mean the answer is it's both right because uh we need the investment and we need that investment now Mm -hmm. and back to my point we also need that investment to be able to sort of have a, a sustained uh, long-term return and, and companies won't be, you know, left holding uh, holding the baby and, and not the bathwater. Um, what, what ends up sort of, you know, happening is 
uh, every country is going to have a different approach that they need to, to play in this, uh, in this instance, part of it because of their natural resources, part of it perhaps because of just their form of government. Um, but I think that it's 100% it's going to have to be both. Some instances, we're going to have to see a much bigger involvement. And we've seen that in different nations, right? Self-reliant India has its sort of policy as to what they're doing. Uh, RE Power EU is you know, driven for its independence. So sovereignty, as we think about this, sovereignty is sort of this new... Uh, anchor that is also part of this notion of the sort of trilemma that everyone has been speaking about. And we've actually seen a lot of um, policy kind of come through, certainly in the last two to three years, which to what Adrian was talking about on the supply chain a little bit earlier, um, is driven to make sure that they're benefiting from, you know, this investment that's happening globally, but also protecting themselves from perhaps, you know, finding themselves on the outside of a bad relationship or, a, you know, a situation where uh, the supply chain is going to get cut off. And when we think about energy transition at the end of the day, we're talking about China a lot because we have to, right? Whether it's the refining capacity that China owns or the rare earths that it's sitting on, they continue to be at the middle, right? So then it's also then back to the story of, you know, the power of the sort of global energy system is still controlled in the hands of a few. And whether it's, you know, the Middle East and, and the U.S. on the oil side because of the low cost of production and the low emissions that come from that uh, and or the rare earths and the refining capacity that China has, uh, you know, the, the geopolitical balance is still a really important part. Yeah. So that kind of leads me into my next question for Adrian, uh -huh. which is if the U.S. and China are truly decoupling, um, how can we expect to move you know, some of these sustainability initiatives forward if most of the U.S.'s resources for that progress are either yeah. owned by or controlled by China? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we are indeed starting to see signs that the U.S. and China are decoupling on trade to a degree. But I don't think we should exaggerate that um, yet. And yeah, as people like Janet Yellen have, have commented, the, the US and China completely decoupling would be would be disastrous. And um, we're not seeing that same sort of decoupling today, for instance, in, in Europe with regard to China. Where I think we're seeing a, a stronger um, decoupling is around the technology front, with the US and its allies looking to restrict, obviously, China's access to um, the, the frontier semiconductors um, and so on. China determined that it's not going to fall behind on that. Um, and I do think we're moving to a world of, of fragmentation on technologies, both blocks big enough to support their own technological base, but just not as efficient as if we were working together. And that's kind of how it plays through into the, the, the energy transition situation. We're not going to be able to move as far or as fast or as efficiently if we're in a decoupled world than we're, if we're working together uh, with, with China and we're all able to share technologies, share um, um, investment opportunities um, and, and so on. I think what that does mean is we have to be looking though at how we restructure um, supply chains. We, we have to be looking to reduce that dependency inevitably um, on China. And I think you know, there are alternatives for some of these raw materials. Probably what is particularly lacking is the sort of processing capacity. That's one error, I think, for instance, that the US needs to be putting in place the right regulatory and in incentives to, to develop that um, internally. But it would all just be better if we weren't decoupling. Great. Thank you for that insight. Um, Nick, what are some of the dangers of going too green too fast, right? So it's all fun and games until the lights go out. 
Yeah, um, I, actually, I don't think we could ever go too uh, too fast in, in in this instance. And part of it is I don't think we have the capital to go too fast. I don't mm -hmm. think we have the you know everything we've talked about. We don't have the regulatory systems and all of that to go too fast. Um, you know, I think the central point is a lot of people think that um, the energy transition or a low carbon world or the fu our future relies on a world without fossil fuels. And again, um, if we take that as a sort of central way that we think about our future and if we can sort of realize and remember that it has its place and it needs to have its place, um, then I think we can understand, well, then how do we sort of in, uh, enable the electrification of, uh, of the world? And it goes back to it's, it requires significant amounts of investment but it also requires a significant amount of sort of social adoption of um, of some of the, the solutions that are there, right? And we see it now in the, the EV penetration um, as it stands. We sort of got 18 or so percent of, of the world is... Um, the new car sales are, are electric vehicles. Uh, as you as you see some of the targets that, for example, Europe has set by 2035, there can be no more EVs yeah. um, that are going to be sold. Um, so, you know, we've already got a, a sort of a 10, 12 year horizon before, you know, Europe needs to say, hey, you know, no more combustion engine cars, please. Um, and there's lots of policies and plans that are sort of taking shape here. So, so I don't, I don't worry about change. Of course, if, if we did say, look, you know, we don't want any of these, um, we don't want any of this investment in fossil anymore. And that's part of the sort of challenge that perhaps we're seeing with European banks mm -hmm. who are saying, look, we don't want to invest in this space anymore. Um, is that the, the, the global production basis we have it today, if we made no new investments in fossil fuels, would decline by 15% every year. We would be short oil next year, yeah. right? And the effects would be dramatic in terms of, of that. So if you want... So think about the petrochemical sector, you would have massive price spikes and a, and a massive supply you know, issue mm -hmm. very, very quickly if that was the case. Um, and so there, you know, the, the sort of phasing of, of what we're trying to do here is, is of course, you know, happening and it's happening a little bit because supply chain is massively disrupted at this point. So we haven't been able to kind of get there, policies and regulations. And as I say every country is very different in how it's been, uh, been doing this. And you, know, you talked a little bit earlier about this notion of how do we get everyone on the same page? And actually, I don't think we need everyone on the same page, but you sure need people to be on, on a page, right? Mm -hmm. That there is a plan, that they do have a, a way that they're going to look at it. But to what Adrian was saying a little bit earlier, accept that every country is going to have a different phase as to how they're going to be able to do that because maybe they've got their own resources or their own uh, uh, sort of global security risks that they're worried about in relation to you know location or trade partners or whoever, whatever that may be. Sorry. No. Sorry. Yeah. I was just going to add, I think one of the other challenges that we're starting to see emerge is actually something of pushback by households to the energy trans transition. So, for instance, because nobody wants flooding in their neighborhood or a wildfire, but in the UK, we've had a lot of protest about the expansion of the ultra-low emission zone in London has become a, a really hot potato because of the, the cost implications for households, getting something of the same around phasing out oil fuel um, boilers as well. Yeah. yeah, If we see that replicated a lot, a lot, across mm. lots of countries, that's just another layer of uh, friction that's going to hold back this transition process. What, what, what's interesting on that, though, is you, if you took Norway as a, as a test case, I work for a Norwegian company, but, you know, when Norway said, okay, we need to try to electrify, electrify the transportation sector, 
you know, what they did is they put into place policies that really encouraged the consumer to adopt the electric vehicle. And that allowed them to drive into to town and, you know, not pay any sort of congestion charge to drive down the bus lanes, to park in certain parking um, areas. And it made it very financially attractive for them to do that because now the cost of you know owning the CV was offset by all of these other sort of benefits that came through. Now, the Norwegian is also sort of very green conscious. It's a very uh, you know well-funded country, so to speak, so they can afford back to this, yeah. na- you know, this con- comment that not every nation can afford to handle the cost of some of these things. But you know, ultimately, there is a way to use incentives, and you know, back to maybe some of your questions, there's a way to use incentives to motivate the consumer to change um, and. Interest rates, back to some of the, what we were talking about, interest rates have obviously made it a little bit harder, for example, to take a $30,000 investment in solar, solar panels in your home. So how do we sort of help that? Well, the IRA comes in and mm-hmm. you know, tries to provide uh, a mechanism for the consumer to start to do that because at the end of the day, electrification is the only way that we're going to be able to get there, right? So we have to go down that path. Awesome. So then where are we today in the energy transition and what can we expect over the next kind of five, 10 years? Yeah, I mean, so we're uh, we're not where we want to be, so that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're um, we're certainly in a good uh, we're on a path, right? Okay. And and that path has seen massive investments in different solutions. Um, what we know is that some of those investments are going to return absolutely nothing, right? There's a lot of enthusiasm, there's a lot of shareholder pressure, a lot of social pressure, a lot of employee pressure for companies to be in this thing. And you know, what is your energy transition message to uh, to the market? Um, and so there's probably a significant amount of you know money that's going to be burned, but we've also made massive headway, right? And I've yeah. talked about the the EV adoption that's sort of taken place. Um, you know, you look at the power sector at this point. Um, global power demand is rising every single year, and what we've seen is that there's now uh, there's a matching of that demand with the additional generation capacity that's come from renewable energy, right? So if you just said, and this is just a global statistic, mm-hmm. so countries, you know. It, 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 it alter it differs but so if you just said hey if we're going to see an increase in this power demand um, how are we going to provide how are we going to meet that well actually we can meet it just through renewable sources so there's anecdotes like that that sort of tell you that we are starting to do the right thing um, but we need more policies we need to think about how does uh, carbon capture how does direct air capture contribute into that you know then uh, we have to start worrying about greenwashing and sort of all the things that are sort of happening where you're not really taking carbon out you're not yeah. really halting you know uh, the addition of carbon into into the environment um, so you know I, I think what we are going to see this notion of sovereign I think we are going to see countries look at supply chains. I think we are going to see uh, countries understand that actually renewable energy is a path to allow them to have some independence from whether it's, you know, Russian gas or whether it's uh, needing to, you know, get equipment from places that, that you know, now are, are sort of struggling to, to get them get them there. So owning more of that and tariffs and, you know, other policies will, will allow us to, to, to do that. Um, so I think, you know, Really, as I say, we're, we're, we, we judge it that we're on a 1.9 degree path by yep. 2050. And, and um, that still means, as I say, that we will see a massive contribution that will come from wind and solar going forward. But we are also going to continue to see a massive demand for hydrocarbons. Great. Yeah, yeah. But I think the only other comment I make, it's really helpful now. We're seeing the U.S. being proactive on policy Definitely. in this area. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, Thank you both for your answers. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have a couple of minutes left for audience questions. So my first question is coming from Anna, and Anna wants to know which commodities will get the biggest uplift from net zero. 
I'm happy to take that. Yeah, you, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so again, I'll go back to the sort of the power sector, right? Um, so lithium, we're going to see such a massive step increase um, in demand for, for lithium. Uh, graphite, cobalt, you know, those are probably the sort of the first three in a very long line of uh, raw materials that are going to be needed. So that the mining and the extraction, the processing of that is probably where I would see the biggest uh, the biggest demand coming from. Great. Awesome. And then we have another question coming from Demetrio, and Demetrio is curious to know what the role of Brazil will be in the global decarbonization. Oh. So, yeah, happy to uh, jump on that as well. Uh, I mean, I guess I'll just go with bio, right? You're, yeah. It's you know you're gonna have biofuels as a as a major potential next um, uh, opportunity, and and I think we're seeing that, and Brazil has always been known for that. Um, there's lots of challenges. I mean, I think if you look at for example, corn uh, husk prices right now, they're sky high and, you know, there's there's issues with uh, with that. But my guess is Brazil will play its part. Uh, I mean, of course, it's got a massive offshore sector. You know, Petrobras is going to continue to be a major producer of, um, of of hydrocarbons and they will need to think about how do they get that as clean as humanly possible. And um, uh, that will involve, I don't know, putting wind turbines to power the uh, the platforms and yeah. those sorts of opportunities. But back to where I started, I think biodiesel will be done. Awesome. And then my last question will be for Adrian. So can you just quickly give us a little bit of a breakdown of the revenue opportunities by industry? Yeah. So, I mean, within the, the, the $10 trillion overall um, opportunity that we see, I said, something like $6 trillion of that is coming in supply chains, the biggest single sector um, directly contributing that to, to that 10 trillion is the renewable uh, energy uh, sector, yeah. followed not far behind by clean energy equipment manufacturing and um, electric vehicles. Um, and then I think um, things like uh, biofuels. Awesome. All right, guys. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Um, that is all the time. Oh, just kidding. We have a couple of live questions. I lied. Um, so I guess this first one, um, I will give to either of you, you can feel free to jump in. So Raj wants to know the earth experienced an ice age only 10,000 years ago. The earth has gone through a global warming since the ice age. What's different now? Is this just the next phase in earth is evolution as a planet? Uh, I think the answer <laughs> to that question is us <laughs> yeah. and what we've done. Um, so it's, it's man-made carbon emissions is the, the big change. Yeah. I that's perfectly put. Awesome. Okay. And then Sunil is wondering, um, while we're moving towards EV and solar energy, do we still have to explore oil and gas? I think, Nick, you touched on that a little bit earlier. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I'll, I'll throw the statistic back out there, which is, you know, fields naturally um, decline. So even to maintain production, uh, you're going to want to find about 15 million barrels for your you know, daily production to come back into the into the system, um, and so that requires continued uh, exploration because the discoveries that uh, are commercial at this point we already know about, um, and then we know that all these countries have tremendous yet to find potential. So, so we will have to uh, continue to explore. We will have to replace reserves. That number will go down, though, right? We yeah. are going to need less hydrocarbons going forward. Um, but globally, what will matter is two things. Um, you know, who, who, who ends up producing is going to be the, the, the lowest cost producer. 
but also the one with the lowest emissions. And I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, uh, that effectively long term suggests that the US should be a major beneficiary of the fact that, you know, this is happening because of the shale revolution and everything that um, it has done on, on the, the EPA and emission side, but also the Middle East, which is an extremely low cost producer and also has low emissions. Mm -hmm. um, so as we think about, you know, right now, OPEC and OPEC plus and the role that Russia and Saudi are playing in maintaining oil prices at and, and above $90, you know, long term, the Middle East will also continue to, to play its part in, in the supply of hydrocarbons. Great. And then I think we have time for just one more question. So this last one I'll give to Adrian. Um, Ed wants to know much of what's been said, cities investments by governments primarily, albeit private as well, given the fiscally strapped government balance sheets coupled with uncontrolled global inflation, are we expecting consumers to ultimately pay the price through more taxation? Well, not necessarily through more taxation, but consumers are going to have to pay a, a, a price here. Things are going to have to become more expensive to reflect the externality Absolutely. associated with consuming fossil fuels. Uh, but I don't think it's the case, as we mentioned earlier, that governments are going to fund all of this transition. Government's role is to create the, the regulatory environment and create the incentives that kind of de-risk bringing in private capital to make it happen. It's private capital ultimately that's going to get us there. Awesome. Thank you for that insight. I really appreciate that. All right. So that's all the time that we have. Thank you guys for being here. Thank you, Adrian and Nick. And thank you to our audience. Um, please join us again tomorrow when Market Watch retirement editor Angela Moore will talk to Nicole Webb, Senior Vice President at Wealth Enhancement Group, about what you need to know for a successful transition into retirement. Thanks for listening. Stay well and have a great rest of your week. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.